All right, good morning. How are you all doing today? Awesome. Hey, if this is your first time joining us here in our room at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, or if it's your first time joining us online, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be talking about two very important ministries of Jesus Christ. The two ministries that only he can do. They're ministries that nobody else can accomplish. The first one of these ministries is to be our advocate before the Father. The second one is to be the atoning sacrifice for all of humanity. We're going to deal with both in detail today as we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. Um, But I wanted to highlight the second one as we open here because tomorrow as a nation, we're going to be observing Memorial Day. And as much as everybody has come to uh, characterize Memorial Day to some degree about being about barbecues and and pool time and fun, um, don't forget. Don't forget what Memorial Day is all about. It is a day to remember and to honor those men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice while serving us in the United States military. And it's said that those who do serve in the military serve to defend the United States and its interests, to defend its citizens against those who would threaten our freedom. And so today, we want to honor those who have given their lives to defend us. Now, when it comes to the enemies of humanity, those enemies that threaten our freedoms, the biggest enemy of all, the biggest enemy that all of mankind has is sin. The Bible talks a whole lot about that. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it tells us that sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness simply means to act in open defiance to the law. Lawlessness, right? Now, when you say what law, what law is the Bible talking about? Well, specifically, the Bible is talking about God's law, God's standard for morality, God's standard for righteousness. You know, God gets to make the law because he created the universe. He created everything. He created us, and he gets to set the rules. Now, God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly moral in every way. And so he gets to set the rules. The problem is, is that sin exists in the world. Sin is the root of every evil, every evil we can imagine. Sin is the root of every evil thought, every evil action. You know, recently with with the shooting in Texas and stuff, the country is again faced with the evil that resides in the heart of man and how that can be expressed. Sin is the disease that every single human being is born with. It's a disease that's inherited by every generation going all the way back to the very first with Adam and Eve. This sin nature that we're born with, this nature causes us to rebel against God's law and to do evil. We sin, we commit sin because it's our nature as fallen human beings to do so. But it's not who we were created to be. It's not how we were created to be. Sin literally takes away our freedom to be who God created us to be in perfect holy, righteous fellowship and communion with him. To worship him, to live in line with his holiness and his righteousness and his purity. 
and to, like I said, exist in this perfect fellowship with our creator. Sin takes that away. The penalty of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And because God is just, as well as holy and pure, he has to judge those who break his law or else he would violate his own character. And we're gonna talk about more, more about that this morning. But he has to judge it because he's a God that is just. He is a God of justice. And so breaking the law requires a penalty. And really because everything that humanity does by our nature that we're born with is tainted by sin, there is nothing pure enough that humanity can do to atone for their own sin. But hallelujah, there was one who stepped up to defend us. There was one who fought for us and won. One who still fights for us today and intercedes for us always. Who laid down his life to secure us, to secure for us our freedom from sin. The one by being the atoning sacrifice for us, by laying down his life for us, purchased, defended, Maintained, kept, restored our freedom. Our freedom to be who God created us to be. Our freedom to live the way God's calling us to live. And his name is Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to be discussing those two ministries of his that make that possible. But I want to open this morning, again, like I said, by honoring those who paid the ultimate price for our freedoms here on earth. We have a video that's going to honor them and to encourage us to remember and to pray for those who have been left behind. But then after that, we're gonna spend time worshiping the one, Jesus, who paid the price for our spiritual freedoms forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for who you are. Lord, you are perfect, you are righteous, you are holy. And God, our nature is quite the opposite. But because of you, in you, through you, we are restored back to the, to the people you created us to be, Lord, with a capacity to live, to honor, and glorify your name. <clears throat> Lord, we have a, a difficult paradox in our life, Lord, where we know we're changed, we know we're born again when we put our faith in you, and yet, Lord, we still commit sin. But it's not hopeless, Lord, because you are our advocate, you are our atoning sacrifice, Lord. And today, as we look at that, I pray, God, we would be greatly encouraged that we're not to live lives focused on the fact of whether we did or did not sin, but we're to live lives focused on you. God who is light, who is love. God who is our atoning sacrifice, who paid the price that we would be free from the power of sin and death. But Lord, we do want to pray for those in our world, God, that as we remember today on Memorial Day, that, that gave that ultimate sacrifice, God. We're so thankful for them in our military, those that are defending our freedoms here in this world, as citizens of this country, God. We pray, Lord, for their families and those that have been left behind that they would be comforted today as we honor those who paid the ultimate price for us. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. And we're looking at just two verses this morning, but they are two very important verses. They have so much to say about our lives here as Christians and the struggle we have with wanting to live a life that glorifies God and to live a life that is free from sin, balanced with the reality that, well, we sin, we mess up, we stumble. And so 
Um, Father, we just pray that you'd bless your word this morning, God. Speak to us, encourage us. Lord, you are so faithful, so amazing, so wonderful. And Lord, we need you. We need you so badly. God, not just before we're saved, God, obviously we needed you to be saved, but every day after, we need you. And we're so thankful that you are faithful and just to be here for us every single day. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, read with me 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Two very powerful verses, and John opens up there with a term of endearment that he uses often when he's writing to people that he's pastoring over, my little children. Um, the phrase, I believe, literally means in the original language, little born ones, right? And um, it's just, it's just a, a cute phrase, but it, but it has so much meaning. You know, at this point, John was writing this letter. Um, he was probably in his 80s. You know, he was an old guy, so it's very realistic that everybody that was reading this letter was literally younger than him, you know? And so, um, but it just shows his heart, his concern for their life. his concern for their living, his concern for their daily just being a Christian in the world they lived in. And so he opens up and he says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. What things? Well, he's referring back to chapter one. Wednesday night in our last study, we looked at verses five through 10 specifically, and I just want to recap that for those of you that maybe missed that study. But John was saying there that, you know, in chapter one, we want you to be confident as believers in the world you're living in, we want you to be confident in who Jesus is, that he is God. From the very beginning of everything, pre-existently God the Son, eternally God with the Father, not the Father, but with the Father. And he says we want you to know that so you can live in light of that, so you can live in light of who he is. Live in light of what he did. Live in light of what he continues to do in our lives. And what he says in chapter one literally is he says, look, walk in the light as he is in the light. Right before that phrase, he said, God is light. Speaking of God's just moral perfection, his holiness, his purity, Not one stain of sin, not one blotch of wrongdoing or evil of any kind is is within God's character in any way, shape, or form. And as believers, we we strive to live in that light. We strive to, to live according to who he is, to follow his example. We strive to be good and to do good and to live righteously. And John, in writing this letter, he wants us to experience the life that God has for us. The life that God has for us, living in the freedom and the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Living in the freedom from the bondage and slavery of sin. Living a life where when temptation comes, we have the power and ability to go, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to glorify and honor my God. John wants us to live that life so that we enjoy the, the resultant fellowship that comes from that. 
right? We talked about that Wednesday, that, that when we walk in darkness as believers, when we engage in sin, we, we break our fellowship with God. We're, we're still saved. We're still his children. He still loves us dearly. But fellowship is broken. There's a disconnect there when, when we engage in sin in our lives. And John's saying, I want you to enjoy the fellowship, not the separation. I want you to enjoy all that peace, that unity, that connection that comes from from living how he wants us to live in obedience. Again, not to earn his favor, but out of gratitude for what he's done. And I think we all know, if we remember who we were before Christ, (laughs) wow, God, you saved that person? (laughs) Thank you so much. I, I, I can't not want anything more than to just honor you, right? But in verse five of chapter one, John jumped right into the biggest enemy of that fellowship. The biggest enemy of that fellowship that God wants for us and that God wants with us, and it's sin. And so he addresses our relationship to sin, our relationship with sin by using the contrast between light and darkness, right? God is light, he is morally perfect, he is holy, he is pure. Darkness is the opposite of that. So walk in the light, not in the darkness. He also uses the contrast between saying and doing, which is a big one, right? If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, well, you're a liar. You, you, you can't say you're in a good, close fellowship relationship when you're being disobedient. You're still his son, you're still his daughter, but you can't claim to have that close fellowship and yet be walking in darkness. And walking in darkness, he characterizes it as not practicing the truth. So when we're not practicing the truth, when we're not you know, living the way he wants us to do, then, then, then we're lying if we try and say, oh yeah, we're, we're good, we have a great relationship, our fellowship is solid. Oh yeah, I'm being obedient to him. Yeah, I'm practicing the truth. John's like, you're not. But then he goes on to say, if we say we walk in the light, which then by contrast is walking in obedience, right? practicing the truth, then, then your fellowship with him is good. And the resultant fruit of that is your fellowship with one another will be good. All the relationships we have in this world are good when we live the way God wants us to live. And then we enjoy this continual, ongoing cleansing from the stain of sin and unrighteousness as we have a relationship where we come and confess our sins when we stumble. And God just does this wonderful work in our lives. But then John clarifies, walking in the light does not mean sinless perfection, right? Walking in the light does not mean sinless perfection because Jesus was the only one without sin. So to ever say we're without sin, he says, is self-deception. You're deceiving yourselves, you know? There is no sin in me. I'm saved. All right. Stub your toe. You know, it might not be holiness that comes out of your mouth, right? You know, it, it's, he, he says you're deceived if you say you're without sin. Now this, I believe, specifically was to combat what was called Gnostic thinking of the time, uh, a philosophy that was going on at the time that, that said, look, the, the spirit and the body, they're, they're separate. They don't affect each other, and the spirit is just inherently good. The body is inherently evil. So the real me, the saved me, the spirit me, is inherently good, and it's going to heaven. And since that has no effect on the body, and the body has no effect on the spirit, the body can do whatever it wants because it's just evil and going to pass away anyways. 
So they had this idea that, you know, you can, your body can engage in sin and, and sex and drugs and, and hurt and murder and all. Your body can do all that because after, it's just going to die. But your spirit's, just, your spirit's good, so it's going to go to heaven. And he's like, no, if you say you're without sin, you're deceived. And John's like, sin does affect you. It has a major effect in you, and it affects you negatively. Specifically, it breaks your fellowship with God. And then he goes to say we have not sinned is calling God a liar because God said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we can't say, well, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm free from it. It's like, you know, and we can't say, you know, I've been saved for this many years and I've never committed a sin since. He's like, come on. Be honest. Every believer has the capacity to commit sin. Every believer stumbles, fails, falls, right? Every believer commits what I call oopsies, right? Because in John chapter three, he deals with the difference between oops, uh, I stumbled, and no, I'm just gonna keep doing this thing. I know, it's, I know God says it's wrong, but I don't agree with him. I think it's fine. I have no conviction, no nothing, and I'm just gonna keep doing it. He deals with that in John chapter three, and he says, look, if that's your life, you don't know God at all. But here, he's dealing with the, you're saved, but you stumble. It's different from that habitual, regular, ongoing, sinful living without repentance. And the key difference between the two, as I said, is a saved believer will experience conviction when they sin. You've all experienced it in here, I think, if you're saved. If you're not, you don't know what I'm talking about. But you do something that, that, is, that is disobedience to God, and there's a sense of, oh, I did wrong. I did that. Oh. I shouldn't have done that. I feel ashamed, I feel guilty. There's a conviction that comes with that. And that conviction is meant to lead to a return to God, right? That conviction is meant to lead us to go, God, I confess my sin. We walk out of the darkness and back into the light. You know, this confession which leads to forgiveness and restored fellowship with him. That dynamic can be a difficult dynamic for people to to handle, especially new believers, right? New believers, they can be really excited um, and should be excited about this new nature, right? They give their life to Christ. They're, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, the Holy Spirit's come to dwell within me. I've been born again. My heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh. Is, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I have this new nature. Hallelujah. Praise God. And then they sin. <laughs> What's up with that? I thought I was never going to sin again. I thought I was set free from all of this. It could be a difficult one. Sometimes we forget, I think, that our new nature doesn't eliminate the old nature that we were born with. That will happen one day. But here on earth, the new nature doesn't eliminate the old nature. The old nature has its origins in our physical birth, and it says in the Bible that it fights against our new nature. The, the, the new nature we were given when we were born again, they fight against each other. And Paul, so wisely says, guess what? The one you feed is going to be the one that wins. So feed your spirit. Stop feeding your flesh. Galatians 5, 16 through 26 talks all about this. It contrasts the works of the flesh in contrast with the fruit of the spirit. And in Galatians 5, 17, he says, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to one another. So John has been saying in opening this letter so far, I want your fellowship with God and one another to be solid. 
I want that to be unhindered, unimpeded. So, so strive to, make it a goal, make it your intent to, to, to live according to God's character, to live according to his holiness, to live according to his righteousness. And, and that comes from the, the intent to be obedient to him, to say, God, I want to do what you're calling me to do. But don't ever think you're sin-free on this side of the cross. Don't think you're perfect. He says, don't deny your sin. Don't cover it up. Don't lie about it, but confess it when you do so that forgiveness and fellowship flow, right? Okay, John, we get it. Chapter two. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Dude! Sin or don't sin? What are you getting at here? What, what are you trying to tell me? Some could read this verse and, and feel like, as a believer, that maybe it's like, well, I feel like I'm caught between a rock and a hard place, right? I mean, John just got done saying we will never be completely free from sin here on earth. We'll ne- we're, we're not sinlessly perfect here on earth, right? If we say we have no sin, we're liars. He just got done saying that. But then he says, so I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. Which, which is it? Well, when he says may not sin there, what he means is you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin, all right? As saved believers, moment by moment, we have the opportunity, we have the choice, moment by moment, to either walk in the light or walk in the darkness. It's, it's the, the reality of, of being a human who's been born again. <laughs> We have this moment-by-moment decision to be obedient and practice the truth or to not do that. And we face it all the time, right? You're driving down the street, someone cuts you off. Okay, Colossians 3, don't let any coarse language proceed from your mouth. Am I going to obey that or am I not going to obey that? You're home alone and it's late and you sit in front of your computer to check your emails one last time, and then there's this temptation, hey, just, why don't you go look at this website or that website? And in that moment, you have a choice. Do I obey God or do I not obey God? And on and on and on. Our goal as believers, our intent, our desire, is, is, to, is to be obedient, right? Our desire is to please God. We, we want God to, to look at our life and go, hey, well done, good and faithful servant, right? We want him to look at our lives and go, yeah, you're, we're, we're, we're tight, we're doing good, we're close, our fellowship is solid. We want that, not to earn anything from him, as I said, our salvation was and always will be free and freely given, but we want to live in a way that pleases him and just out of gratitude, at least that's how I do it. God, I, I just... I just want to express my gratitude to you by, by obeying you. I want to live a life that when people look at my life, they glorify God just because you saved me. To express his gratitude for not just saving us, but then cleansing us every single time we fall into the mud. So the trajectory of our lives should always be towards holiness and away from sinful living, towards holiness. That's, that's the goal. That's the trajectory. Now, when he says, I write you these things so that you may not sin, 
And I believe he's saying so that you, you don't have to sin is what he's getting at. One of the beautiful things about salvation is that we are empowered in our salvation to say no to sin. Empowered to say no to sin. When we're saved, the Bible tells us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, right? He lives within us. And the power of God within us gives us the ability to say no to the temptation of sin when it presents itself. But what that means, we're given an ability we did not have prior to salvation. We're empowered to do something we were powerless to do prior to salvation. We have a choice that we did not have prior to salvation. Prior to salvation, the Bible presents our condition as slaves to sin. It says this in Romans 6:17. But thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, and that word means to be literally under the power and control of, instead of that, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching from which you were handed over, and then he goes to talk about how you were then set free from sin. Set free from the power and the control of sin. Sin didn't go away. Sin didn't disappear. But you were no longer enslaved to it. You no longer had to obey it because your base, born, physically born human nature said sin. That's what I'm going to do because that's who I am. And so Paul goes on in Romans to say, because my sin nature is still with me, even though my spirit is alive, he, he goes on to do that famous section in Romans where he's like, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. And I find myself not doing the things I do want to do. And then kind of in an exasperated moment where he's like, what is, what is the answer to this? He says, praise God that Jesus saved me because one day my sin nature will be God, right? After he has this like, oh, thank God one day it'll be God gone moment, he then goes on to speak about being in the spirit, living according to the spirit and how that spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us. And then in Romans eight twelve, he says this, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are given an ability to say no to sin that we didn't have prior to salvation. And so when John is writing these things, he goes, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. That's what he's getting at. I'm writing these things to encourage you to walk in the light. I'm writing you these things to, to encourage you to just endeavor and make it your point, your trajectory to, to be obedient to God, to walk in that. But don't be deceived that you're gonna be perfectly sinless in this world. You're gonna stumble. You're gonna fall. And so that the fight between the two, it's a struggle. It's a fight. It's a battle. For some of us, it's moment by moment. For others of us, it's day by day. For some of us, maybe we're blessed that it's a week-to-week -week fight. But the point is, is that we still wrestle against this. And then he says in Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So the point there is before Christ, we really didn't have the ability to say no to sin. After Christ, we have the ability to say no to sin. 
So he goes, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But then right after that, he goes, but if anyone does sin, right? John, you're flip-flopping, dude. No, he's not. Follow the logic here. Walk in the light, not in the darkness. Don't ever say you're without sin. Everybody sins. If you do sin, confess. God will forgive you. God will cleanse you. But I'm writing this so that you don't sin. I'm writing this so that you, you, you make that decision. You endeavor to do it. But when you do sin, you know, back to reality, even though we've been given the God-given ability to say no to sin, guess what? Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't. We would all love to be able to say, I never give in to sin, but come on. Sometimes we don't. Now that word sometimes means different things for each one of us, right? Sometimes could be very seldom. Sometimes it could be like, man, every day I, I stumble on this one thing. But every time there's that, that conviction that, that's supposed to lead to confession. But he says there, but if anyone does sin, that word if isn't a conditional like maybe it wouldn't happen. It literally means whenever someone does sin or when anyone does sin, or if by chance you stumble. And then that word anyone there just literally means anyone, right? Young, old, spiritually mature, spiritually young, all people, anyone. So nobody's excluded here. And then the word sin, you might have heard this before, simply means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. To miss the target. What's the target? The target is to walk in the light. The target is to have solid fellowship with God. The target is to have nothing that gets in between us. But sometimes we miss that mark. We stumble. We fall. Now, why is it that saved people, Jesus died for your sins. You've put faith in that. You've received it. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Why is it that people that have been saved can then miss the mark, stumble, but immediately be able to confess, which means to to be open and honest with God, to agree with God that your sin is what it is, right? God, I did it. Not, well, no, it wasn't that, but no, God, I, I sinned. I broke your law. I sinned against you. Why is it that we can be saved, miss the mark, then confess, and then get to experience forgiveness and cleansing and restored fellowship over and over and over again? Well, that's what we see at the end of verse one. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate with the Father. That's a powerful word in Scripture. The word advocate means one who is called alongside to help in a time of need. That's what the word literally means. Now, the Greek word, parakletos, I think pair of cleats, right? That's how I remember the word. This word is translated as helper, intercessor, mediator. The word carries the idea of a legal advisor, which is why in some places it's translated counselor. John uses this word several times in his writings. In John chapter 14, verse 16, and verse 26, and John chapter 15, verse 26, he uses this word parakletos to refer to the coming of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He calls the Holy Spirit the parakletos. Here, 
he calls Jesus the Parakletos. Now, in the other writings in John's Gospel, when he uses this word to refer to the Holy Spirit there, he translates it as, um, in the ESV, the ISV, in the New King James, it's translated helper, right? I'm sending a helper. In the Christian Standard Bible, it's translated counselor for the Holy Spirit. But here in 1 John, referring to Jesus, I think advocate is, is, is the best translation. Because advocate, that part of this word, it, it doesn't just mean to come alongside to help but it expands the idea into one who lends his voice in our defense or one who speaks up, speaks up on someone else's behalf. That's the help that an advocate brings. That's the idea of that legal advisor or a counselor. Now, it is interesting that the Holy Spirit is also called the same thing, right? And so I was thinking about, well, what's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you know? Is, is it different than the ministry of Jesus, you know, in these regards? Well, here on earth... Here with us today, dwelling within us today, is God the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. And he's here as our helper, our counselor, or that word also means advocate. He dwells within us. What he does here, what the Holy Spirit does here on earth is he speaks to us on behalf of God. He speaks to us on behalf of God. How? He convicts us of sin. And he's also speaking to the world the way he convicts the world of sin. But in the life of a believer, as he is advocating for himself to us, what that looks like is, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. You probably shouldn't go there. You probably shouldn't click on that. You probably shouldn't. Hey, God said don't do that. He Remember, walk in the light, right? John's going, I'm doing this so that you choose to walk in the light. But then in heaven, face to face with the Father, is Jesus Christ, our advocate, who speaks to God on our behalf. Pretty neat. Romans 8.34, it says, Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. That word intercede it means to plead for someone, to plead their case, to plead their cause. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our advocate. He pleads our case before the Father. And he alone can plead our case because he alone is the one that paid the price for our sins. Imagine you get a, a ticket or something. And someone else goes into the court and goes, I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to pay that fine. And then you show up to the court a week later and you're like, hey, I'm here to pay my ticket. I broke the law. And they're like, what ticket? It's gone. It doesn't exist. You're not guilty. It's paid for. This is the idea. Because it's a courtroom um, word or can be used as a courtroom word. I was thinking of the courtroom, right? You, you think of a court, a courtroom. There's typically at least four people. You have the judge. You have the prosecuting attorney, right? Um, you have the defense attorney, and then you have the defendant. That's, that's kind of at the minimum of what you would have in a courtroom. 
Now, courtroom drama has led to like, you know, hundreds of shows over the years, TV shows of this court drama or that court drama and, you know, Boston legal and, you know, every legal you could think of. And there's just, you know, people are kind of like, ooh, you know. It's funny, you talk to attorneys, you know, real practicing attorneys, and they go, none of those TV shows are accurate. That's not how any of it works. But recently, everybody's eyes, it seems in my life, around me, so maybe not you, but everybody has been glued to a courtroom drama that's been unfolding in front of us with the John, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, right? People are watching it like it's a soap opera. You go on social media, it's just everything that flies by social media, snips of the thing and analyzing, oh, the attorney said that, right? It's just... There's something about all that drama that, that grabs our attention, or at least some of our attention. Well, with that in mind, you picture the courtroom, and you picture God, the Father, as judge, sitting on the bench. The prosecutor is Satan himself. You and me, we're the accused. We're the defendants. We're the ones there who are being accused of breaking the law, and our defense attorney, Jesus, God the Son is the one who intercedes for us or pleads our case on our behalf. Now this is a, a, a picture and what a neat picture it is. I had this jacket once, just thought of this right now. It was like a black kind of like biker jacket but it was, had flames painted up the arms. And I preached at an evangelistic outreach once and I was playing the part of the accuser and people were like, man, that jacket really <laughs> made, made the picture there. I don't know why that just came to mind. But anyways. Um, but Satan is the accuser. And why is he the prosecutor? Well, in Revelation 12.10, it calls him, Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He's the one laying the accusation. He's the one laying the accusation. And so when I stumble, when I sin, when I, when I do something that is disobedience to God, I can imagine Satan Rushing into the courtroom, God the Father's on the bench, but he rushes in there into the presence of the Father to accuse me. And he does it every single time, right? I can almost hear him as he quotes scripture, runs in there, hey, Nathan sinned, he did this, he said this, he thought this, and God, your law, your law, here's the penalty of sin, it's death, he needs to die, right? That's what your law says, he broke it, he, he deserves the judgment, you know, and he just goes on and on and on. But then I can imagine my defense attorney, Jesus Christ. He goes, yeah, he did it. He did it. He did everything he's been accused of. He committed the sin. Father, he's guilty. But Father, I went to the cross. And I died to pay the penalty for that sin. I died for that sin. I already suffered the punishment for him committing that sin. And Father, if you remember, and I remember, and we remember together that when he was 21 years old, in his bedroom, clutching a Bible in his hand, you remember that it was at that time through his faith in me that he professed the penalty of all his sins was paid by me. It's already done, it is finished. And you said that my sacrifice is sufficient payment for the debt that he owes. My full payment was applied to him. All his sins were forgiven. It was at that moment, Father, that I put my robe of righteousness on him and I cleansed him by my blood. I paid the price so that he could be pronounced not guilty right now in this moment. 
there is no debt left. There's no penalty to be paid. Praise God for that. In the modern legal world, it's not permissible for an attorney in a case to be related to the judge. In heaven's court, perfectly legal. <laughs> Love that. You know, the son goes up to the bench, hey, dad. <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? Also, in our modern legal world, it's not permissible for a defense attorney to be related to the defendant. But again, in heaven's court, it's perfectly legal. Right? This is, this is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. I died for them. I adopted them into the family. And when we confess our sins, the reality is, is we stand before God guilty. We stand before him with no argument, no justification. We try sometimes, I think, right? One of the favorite ones of the world is, I'm not as bad as that person, that person's not on trial, you are. Well, they did, look, they're gonna have their own case, but you're on trial right now. Did you break God's law? When we stand there, we're guilty. When we confess, we're guilty, but our advocate then steps in before the judge, and together they agree that because we are in Christ, no further punishment is necessary beautiful. Now what makes Jesus the perfect, compassionate advocate is that he experienced life in this world too. I love that. He was tempted. He was rejected. He was overlooked. He was misunderstood. He was abused. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that mankind is. He experienced every single type of temptation that can possibly happen to us so that we have no excuse. Well, Jesus, you don't understand this one. No, I do. He doesn't just represent us before the Father theoretically. He represents us experientially. He lived the life we lived. He lived as a human on this earth. But he did so without giving in to the sin that we are tempted to do. Why? He's the righteous one. Jesus Christ, our advocate, the righteous one, the one who has never sinned. And so as he pleads our case from personal experience, again, Father, this, my child, yes, they have violated our righteous law. They broke it, but they love you. They want to serve you. I, I, and Jesus says, I remember what it was like to be tempted like that. I remember what it was like to be in that position, and my heart goes out to them. Now they have confessed their sin. They agree with us that it's sin. They agree with us that they deserve the judgment of that sin. But you can forgive them of that sin. And you could purify their heart once more and cleanse them once more because I died for that sin. So Father, let's comfort them through the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter, the Spirit. And let's teach them to use the strength that we have given them through the Holy Spirit to say no next time. Then he picks us up and dusts us off and puts that pure, perfect robe of righteousness back over our shoulders and says, let's keep going. Hebrews 7, 25, it says, he always lives to intercede for us. Always lives. His intercession is never, well, they didn't do it or that wasn't really sin. <laughs> no, it's they're guilty. 
but his intercession, it's not temporary. We never show up to court and it's like, hey, where's our defense attorney? He always lives. His, his intercession is, is not temporary. It's never interrupted. It's accomplished in time, but it's eternally valid. That's what I love about it, right? If I sin later this afternoon and I say, God, forgive me, I'm confessing my sin, the, the, the intercession is happening right there. In the, Father, that one? Yep, same conversation. I died for that one. But his intercession is going to go on forever and ever. And this is why. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All he asks in that sense is that when we have stumbled, when we have failed, when we stepped into the darkness for a moment, all he asks is that we confess. It's not a salvation condition. We're still his kid. He still loves us dearly. But the fellowship that gets broken is just confess. Come clean. Stop lying about it. Stop hiding it. Stop covering it up. Stop redefining it. Stop justifying it. Stop denying that you've sinned. Accept it. Take responsibility for it. Then you do that. You're stepping out of the darkness into the light. Where he stands ready to plead our case based on his work on our behalf. But notice that it said always lives. What that means to me is not only is he pleading my case now, but he's already pleading my case for tomorrow. <laughs> he's already pleading my case for the day after that and next week and next month because he already paid for all of it past, present, and the future 2,000 years ago. Guys, we are free. We are free in Christ. And so we don't live every day focused on did I sin or did I not sin, right? Keeping a list, did I confess for that one? <laughs> That's not the intent. That's not the idea. Yeah, sin breaks our fellowship, but he's like, don't, don't live focused with this scorecard, if you will. Live with your arms wrapped around him, full of his love, full of his light. Yes, our goal is to not sin, but when we do stumble, we lean on him, we depend on him, we count on him to plead our case. We count on him to then forgive us and to cleanse us and to restore our fellowship because our focus of our lives is not did I sin or not sin. It's God, you are my God, you have set me free. And so I will stay focused on you, focused on his love, focused on his care, focused on his concern because that's our everything. And it's all possible because of verse two. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, no one else in all of time and creation could function as our advocate and then be able to say, your sins are forgiven except Jesus. He is the only one whose death could satisfy the honor and the justice of God. And notice there, verse two, it doesn't say he was the atoning sacrifice for us. It says he is. Every single day, present tense, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was yesterday, he is today, he will be tomorrow. You can count on that. 
Jesus qualifies to be our advocate and qualifies to be able to grant us forgiveness because he himself became the sacrifice for our payment. That's what it means there by the atoning sacrifice. The word atoning is, is, is the concept of making payment for wrongdoing. Right? The wages of sin is death. He died. So we don't have to. Now I think there's four words that kind of explain the meaning, depth, and gravity of atoning sacrifice. Now, if you have a, a different translation, the word there might be propitiation, right? Propitiation is a word we don't use very much, and what propitiation means is atoning sacrifice, right? So we're all, we're all clear here. But I think there's four words that are wrapped up in the depth of this, wrath, holiness, justice, and love. These four characteristics happen to be characteristics of God that we see throughout Scripture, but they answer the question, if God is a God of love, why couldn't he just forgive our sins? Why couldn't he just let it go? Why couldn't he just been like, oh, okay, well, no big deal. We'll just, we'll just ignore it. Why couldn't he do that? I mean, if he's a God of love. Now, if he was only a God of love, maybe you can rationalize that, but he's also a God of holiness and justice. And justice had to be fulfilled. God can't deny his very nature. He cannot not be who he is. And yes, he's a God of love. He's also a God of justice. What would we call a judge who didn't enforce the law? What would we call a judge who, who didn't mete out the penalty for someone breaking the law? Well, in most cases, we would call that judge corrupt we would call that judge unjust. And because sin is an offense against God's holy nature, he has a righteous anger towards sin. This is where the wrath comes in, right? Romans 1.18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The sin problem is universal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? You and I, we cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot forgive ourselves for our own sin against God. That has to come from outside. And then because God is perfectly holy, perfectly right, morally pure and true and all of that, he is rightfully wrathful against sin. This is his holiness. He is so holy and so pure and so perfect that he rightfully has wrath against sin, which is a complete and total offense against who he is. And because he is almighty and a creator and God above, and I said earlier, because he's all those things, he's the one that wrote the laws of right and wrong and he gets to write those laws because he's the creator. Because he wrote those laws, the penalty for those laws, the penalty for breaking those laws, the penalty for godlessness and unrighteousness, according to his word, is death. He couldn't just ignore the penalty for guilty lawbreakers. That would be a violation of his own character it would mean that he's unjust or hypocritical or a corrupt judge. But then you get to God's love, right? 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. How can he deal with the penalty for sin, which according to the laws he wrote is death, and at the same time, not have us suffer the death penalty for sinning. How can he do that? How could he be a just judge 
and yet let us go free at the same time. Well, you all know the verse, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. At the cross, God's wrath, God's holiness, God's justice, and God's love all met together. God's holiness made sin an affront to his character. God's justice demanded payment for that sin. But the fact that God loves us so much The fact that God loves us even in our sin, because of his love, he sent his own son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sin. By Jesus' death on the cross, God's wrath against sin was satisfied. God's justice in dealing with sin was satisfied. And the penalty of sin, the penalty that was due to us, is removed from us because the penalty was poured out on him. Why? Because he is the atoning sacrifice. And he is our advocate every single day. And then John closes this verse with the second part of verse two. Not only for ours, but also those of the whole world. Which sinning sinners can God accept? Is it only those of a particular denomination? Is it only those who, who dress a certain way when they come to church or listen to a certain type of music? Which sinning sinners can God forgive and establish fellowship with and do this continually over and over to keep cleansing them and, and, and forgiving them every single time they confess? Which ones? All of them. All of them. Every single person who lives in the whole world. Yes. For the person, maybe in this room or online, that just thought, that can't include me. It includes you. It includes you. He died for you too. Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all people for all time. Jesus' death on the cross completely satisfies the legal debt of our sin, so much so that all of humanity is savable. The only condition, faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him, in who he is and what he did for you. That's it. And then he begins that work of just sanctifying you and cleansing you. And then as you now with a brand new heart say, God, I want to live to glorify your name and I want to be obedient. You're like, ah, oops, I fell. He goes, confess. And I'll forgive you and cleanse you. And let's keep going. This, of course, doesn't mean that every human on the earth will be saved but salvation is indeed available to every human on the earth and every human that ever will be on the earth. And I think when he says not just for ours, but also those of the whole world, I think that is a wonderful call to evangelism. We all know people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior yet, who are still mired and enslaved to sin, who are still living lives that are destroying them and their relationships and their friends and their family and hurting their marriages and their kids and they can't stop. And you and I who have been set free from the power, the control and the penalty of sin, we have the answer. We have the hope. It dwells within us. And it's just saying, let me out. Share me with whoever will hear that they too can be saved. So tomorrow as 
as we're celebrating Memorial Day and remembering those who gave the ultimate sacrifice that we would be able to live free in this country. Take a moment to remember that and honor that in the midst of your festivities and in your day off from work or whatever. But don't forget the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Not that we would just be able to live free here on earth, but to live spiritually free forever. And hey, if you're around friends and family tomorrow at a unique holiday event that maybe doesn't often pull you together, but on this particular event you're together, I call that opportunity, people. Let them know about the one who could give them forever freedom from sin. Father God, we thank you. God, you are holy, you are just, you are pure. God, you set an example for us to follow, but Lord, honestly, man, it's an example that we fail at continually. But Lord, every single time we stumble and we fall, God, you're there to plead our case. You're there to stand before your Father and before our accuser, not to deny our guilt but to proclaim that you already paid the penalty for our guilt. God, hallelujah to that. Lord, we are lost without you. We live in a broken world that in so many ways is controlled by sin, that is under the sway of the evil one. And Lord, you've revealed to us so we know, God, you've given us your 10 commandments, you've given us the, the, the rules, Lord, that we would be able to say, oh yeah, I have indeed sinned against God, Lord. We've lied, we've lusted, we've stolen, we've used your name in vain. But God, you came to us. You came to this earth, Lord, knowing there was nothing we could do to pay our own price, Lord, and you paid it for us that through our confession of our sin, through our faith in you, God, we would be saved. And then for the rest of our lives here on this earth, Lord, we would be able to live empowered to say no to sin. But when we do stumble, God, to have this glorious relationship with you as our advocate and our atoning sacrifice, that all we need to do is confess our sin. And you forgive it, and you cleanse us. So while we're praying with heads bowed and eyes closed, if there's anybody in this room this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity now to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You know, God's word is very clear that we have all sinned against him and broken his law. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single human has. But he gives us an opportunity to have the guilt for those things dealt with to have the condemnation dealt with, that we would be able to move forward from this day knowing, that you would be able to move forward from this day knowing that yes, when he says that he died for the whole world, that includes you, and that if you would come to him today, repent of your sin, believe he is God, believe in what he has done, be honest with sin and say, God, sin is sin and I've committed it, forgive me. He will do just that. You will be forgiven, you will be set free from the power of sin. And one day when you leave this earth, it'll be an eternity in heaven with your creator. So while we're praying, if you're in this room today, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If he is speaking to your heart, tugging on your heart right now, and you know you need to do this, 
The Bible says today is the day of salvation because no man knows if they have tomorrow. And don't put off this decision. God is speaking to you today. He wants to be your advocate. He is your atoning sacrifice. And if you want to receive him this morning, just raise your hand so I can see it. Let me pray with you. If you're online, obviously I can't see you. But if you want to receive Jesus this morning, just put a note in the chat box that says, I want to, I want to receive Christ. Anybody in this room, God is speaking to you this morning. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, God, for dying for us. And I pray for those, Lord, that need to receive you now, that have expressed a desire to receive you now. Lord, that as the work you're doing in their heart, even in this very moment, is changing them, God, that they would know the peace that surpasses all understanding and experience a true forgiveness and a freedom from guilt and condemnation that they've never experienced before. So if you want to receive Jesus this morning, whether you're in our room or online, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Say, Father God, I know I've sinned against you. I'm guilty. Sin is what you say it is, and I've committed it. And I'm sorry. I confess it all to you, trusting and believing that Jesus Christ is advocating for me in this very moment. That he is pleading my case, proclaiming that he already paid my penalty, that he died on the cross for me. And I believe that. I put my faith in that, in who he is and what he did. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much. I invite you to be the Lord of my life, to teach me how to live in the light and not in the darkness. And help me, Lord, to have the peace, the peace of knowing that when I do stumble, all I need to do is confess and let you cleanse me and forgive me. Thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.